Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Richard Lacremont is our guest today, and he has been an Army officer for the last 29 years. He's had senior-level assignments in Iraq, Afghanistan, Korea, and at the Pentagon. He's also taught at West Point, the Naval War College, and the Army War College. And he's been the dean of the U.S. Army War College for eight years um, after he retired from the military. And then um, he's now working as a research professor in the U.S. War College Strategic Studies Institute. And Richard is a leading voice on military education and professionalism. And by professionalism, what we mean is um, how the army is is positioned to serve society. Right. And, you know, the reason that we invited Richard here is because we've spent a lot of time in the last several months thinking about medicine as a profession. And so we thought that we would have this conversation with him to think about how some of the lessons that the military has learned can be applied to medicine. Exactly. So let's have a listen. Richard, it's really great for you to join us today on Moral Matters. And I, I want to start out with a brief introduction for you to just introduce a little bit about what you do at the U.S. Army War College. And um, because your background isn't usual for, for our listeners. I'd be happy to. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and I have to start off one of the things about being a Department of the Army civilian is to acknowledge that what I, what I say are my own views and not those of the Department of the Army or the U.S. Army War College or the U.S. government. Um, that said, um, I have been part of the U.S. Army literally my entire life. I was born in an Army hospital in Germany when my father was stationed there in the, during the Cold War. My parents were stationed there in the Cold War. Uh, grew up my entire time while he was still in the Army, went to West Point, was an Army officer for 29 years, and now I'm a Department of the Army civilian as a professor, a full professor at the Army War College. And so literally, the Army has been part of my entire life. And so uh, I obviously witnessed it as a child, uh, became an Army professional, and have spent a lot of time thinking about what it means for the Army to serve society. And what I, I was the dean for eight years here at the Army War College after retiring, and I'm now a research professor. But one of my main research interests is the profession itself. I was part of a project while on active duty about the future of the Army profession that really spent a lot of time grappling with how the Army understood its responsibilities to society. Uh, not just, and it really is, it's not just we have skills that we apply, we have uh, techniques that we've gotten used to doing. Uh, obviously, people think of war when they think of a military force. But war is not the end of a military force. It is to serve society's security interests. And so that's where professions come in, doing something for society that society can't do itself. And usually professions have a tremendous amount of expert knowledge, uh, often at the highest levels, an abstract sort of knowledge that society doesn't have resident throughout. It requires special training, special preparation. And then using it for society's ends means it's not about the individuals in the profession. It's about the people we serve. Uh, and so I, I've spent a lot of time trying to, you know, being a professional, and now I focus on how to prepare future professionals. Uh, part of my stewardship of our profession is to help develop the professionals who will, who will take over, who have already taken over, quite frankly, but to continue to prepare them to do this going into the future. 
So I think that's a really relevant conversation for us in medicine who are thinking about as medicine changes so dramatically, how do we continue to maintain our profession as, as the one that we all thought about going into? And maybe we didn't even think about it in such formal terms as a profession, but this is who I want to be as a doctor. Mm-hmm. And so I think it would really help us to understand, you know, moral injury is, is a term that was first used in the military. And I think it relates somewhat in the military to professionalism. Um, and I think you've written about some of the egregious um, acts or situations that really brought into question some of the professionalism in the military. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could just talk with us a little bit about um, some of your thoughts on how a profession evolves and um, what it means, what it what it might mean in terms of moral injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I the one thing that I've written that probably comes closest to it that I would highlight for others to maybe take a look at is I wrote a, an article a couple of years ago, uh, literally tied to the 50th anniversary of the My Lai massacre in, uh, in Vietnam. And very few would ever disagree that the, ex- the events on the ground in Vietnam that day were completely indefensible. Uh, the only person tried uh, in a court of law for their behavior that day was a platoon leader. But if you look closely, what you recognize, and that was Lieutenant Kelly, probably a very famous name, but frankly, it was an institutional failure of epic proportions. And not just that day, setting the conditions that made something like what Lieutenant Kelly and his platoon did um, more likely. Uh, it's still choices of those individuals who need to be account, who need to be responsible for their moral choices. But the army, the Ameri- you know, that we did not put those soldiers and those leaders in position very well. And when the there was a fabulous, a fascinating report done afterwards by a lieutenant general, the Peers Commission, P E E P E E P E E R S, Peers, uh, who wrote the commission report, who kind of looked and said, "Look, it was more than just what happened that day. It was how we set them up, the sort of incentives for body counts, for performance." on the battlefield that sort of triggered unprofessional behavior that we knew wasn't what we were really after. But even worse was the cover-up. We didn't actually find out about Milai till a year after Milai. There were leaders at many levels that tried to cover up what happened. There were, and probably many more who were responsible that day, but it reflected a complete breakdown in professional responsibility. So it really takes the, it doesn't take the, the responsibility away from the individuals, the soldiers, the junior officers on the battlefield from what they did. That was immoral. That was wrong. And, and by the way, I want to, a quick aside, there were much more horrific things done by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong in that same time frame. If you've ever read about the Battle of Way, thousands of civilians or non-combatants were executed by our adversaries. But these were Americans. And so there's an element of, yes, there's things that are horrible things that happen on the battlefield, but not things that Americans can do. And so holding them to account for moral standards that are not you know, historical, what militaries can do to be effective. It's about how Americans behave on the battlefield to be consistent with our values. So to recognize there was a, a, a institutional breakdown 
in what we had done in how we had not trained the soldiers. That lieutenant was a 90-day wonder, Lieutenant Kelly, meaning he was brought in to make an officer without, you know, the four years of West Point or ROTC or some of the other things that we generally think of what it takes to become a full-fledged, mature, you know, sort of professional in that context. We had cut corners. Same thing with the soldiers who had been brought in through the draft or made non-commissioned officers on short order. There were a lot of institutional failures that meant that we put people who weren't prepared to behave professionally in the most, one of the most daunting circumstances where life and death are on the line and where our country's reputation and interests are on the line. So it was, it was sort of taking that and spending and reflecting on the 50 years. And there was a major professional study done in 1970 at the Army War College looking at what had happened that identified a lot of what I've just summarized with came from that study saying we as a profession miss, you know, had, had missed our, had not understood our responsibilities and did a poor job of setting the conditions that helped contribute. Uh, didn't excuse the individuals there, but helped contribute to the circumstances. And we can't allow that to happen again. Richard, uh, one of the fascinating things you, you mentioned there, which really lines up with moral injury in the healthcare setting, is the fact that a lot of this is related to institutional things. It doesn't excuse individuals and it doesn't excuse individual circumstances, but it's the concept of an institutional failure maybe a corporate failure in some situations, but either way, a, a larger system issue. Can you talk a little bit about the things that, from that example, the things that were learnt that um, changed what was done in the military or lessons that were learnt that that came from that? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I, I think a lot of it was uh, realizing that uh, we had incentivized senior leaders at like the the 20 to 25 year experience mark, lieutenant colonels and colonels, battalion commanders and brigade commanders in that context who were looking to advance their careers and having combat on their record was a valuable thing. And then not necessarily the quality of that thing. And when we had said a marker of success in that war became how many enemies did you kill and body count became kind of this numerical standard uh, for example, at Milai, you know, I think in the official report, there were 148, or I forget the exact number, but something like, you know, however many bodies were claimed as enemy. In fact, over 400 people died that day based on most accounts. Uh, but there were only three weapons found. So explain how many enemy in that body count are associated with only three weapons found. And it sort of gets to this idea of, so sort of what are we counting? What, what are the metrics we've set? to demonstrate success, and they were completely inappropriate for what we were trying to accomplish. And body count, that's why you've, in subsequent wars, body count became almost completely anathema to the military. We will not count enemy dead because we realized how bad that was for our profession to fixate on bodies, which led to a lot of dysfunctional behaviors. And so you know, leaders were incentivized to show body counts, and nobody was going back and double-checking them on whether they were civilian or Viet Cong or North Vietnamese bodies. Um, and in the heat of battle, who's going to? Uh, and that's also sort of a sense there's a, an element of in these circumstances where we've trusted these people to act on behalf of society, we've given them some latitude. And we've, and it's a really tense situation, too, to realize if we say, we don't trust you, you know, we, in, we intervene from above to, to, to dictate what you do is a sense of we can't trust you to be autonomous in exercising discretionary judgment. And so this is where sort of the flip side of to not behaving professionally is usually 
those you answer to, in our case, the U.S. government through Congress or the American people, the executive branch, could intervene and they'll just take your discretion away and just simply turn you into a bureaucracy. You will do this and you will report very precisely and we will dictate the metrics and it's no longer relevant how you think you should do it. We'll simply dictate to you. And, and I, I hear, I, and, and I, I'm not a medical expert, and I've read about the professions literature and watching sort of this idea of, you know, we expect the medical profession to yield health outcomes for society, not profit outcomes for companies. But the tension between what I just described with military leaders whose incentive for succeeding in combat was deliver body counts sort of went against the really core reason they were there, which was deliver security for the American people against an adversary. And the two are not the same. Um, so how do you sort of create, you know, give them the discretionary judgment to do the right thing and be mindful that when they don't, you need to probably exercise more control. But the other part is, how do you actually prepare them, set the conditions for them to make the judgments in those cases where no centralized bureaucracy is going to do well at these complex problems? Uh, so you got to have bureaucracies for large organizations, but for professions to deliver, to deliver societal outcomes, you need professional discretion. And that's a tough tension to reconcile. And it is a constant problem. It's not something that you, there's a formula to to say, oh, just let the professionals do it or just let the bureaucracy decide. It's that tension between large organizations that need bureaucracies and professions and professionals who exercise judgment. And how do you, you know, sort of let make sure professional responsibilities, that is the ones that most important to society, really kind of dictate or drive what the bureaucracy does. So we're talking a lot about professions and professionalism. Mm. And I think one of the really important things for me in, in learning about this was to understand sort of the core tenets of what is professionalism and what are our responsibilities to maintaining professionalism mm. um, so, that, so that we can think about that in the medical context as well. Because I'm not sure that we're as intentional about that as we might be. Hmm. Yeah, that, and I admit this is one of these sort of tough elements, and I usually the pushback or or the difficulty is when say one of the core de, or core in defining elements of a profession is sort of mastering a body of abstract knowledge. Uh, if you can sort of turn this into a computer algorithm that will generate the right answer all the time, you don't need a profession. Uh, and so bureaucracies and routinized or you know organizations that that apply. Um, you know, formulas that will get to the right answer all the time or most of the time, not a bad thing. And the more we've gone on, a lot of times we've identified things that used to be the realm of professional judgment. I think uh, there's a great book by a University of Chicago sociologist called The System of Professions. And it's an essay on the division of expert labor uh, or a division of labor in society and kind of what professions do. And it notes that a lot of profession, professions over history die. And in some ways, they sometimes they die just because they're no longer, it doesn't require any abstract knowledge uh, or any judgment. Uh, I think it was railroad engineers were a profession, essentially the ones who sort of in the pre-computer era managed railroad timetables. How do you deal with all these different pieces trying to come together? Well, over time, we that did become routinized in a way that did not require professional discretion. Uh, the same thing has happened in the medical and, and in the military profession. Things that used to be the realm of, you know, sort of a judgment, sort of the, the art, if you will, of how do you do this, 
has been overtaken by the science. Oh, certain things that we just, you do this and you get this answer. And now it's routinized and you no longer need a professional to exercise discretionary judgment. It either becomes like in the army, we'll use non-commissioned officers or soldiers or warrant officers who are usually master a body of discrete knowledge um, to do specific tasks, fly a helicopter and function and use a helicopter to launch missiles. Uh, but when do you pull the trigger is still a discretionary judgment. And so giving them the moral, the sense of, I got it, you went through all these things, you can operate this machine, but when do you actually send an explosive device off to destroy an object or kill a person? That is still a human judgment. And so, you know, even within those realms of where, yes, most of it's routinized, target acquisition and, and attack, the question is, okay, when is it still appropriate for you to follow through to the last step? And the same thing in, at the higher levels you go to, now I have not just one helicopter, but a whole battalion of 24 helicopters. And now we sort of ratchet that judgment to where do you send them? Because when they go through their algorithm of what looks like an, an accurate or a an appropriate target to shoot at, now you've sort of, that's where you get into the, you put them in that place. You've told them where to go and say, look for these criteria because you're likely to find enemy. And now your rules of engagement sort of relax certain standards to say, you are now in a place where your skill of using violence to kill on behalf of the United States is what we need. Um, these are life and death decisions. My sense of the medical profession is very similar when it comes to like triage. It's like, it's one thing to, I mean, the, the optimal thing is we're only doing this because we want positive outcomes for the country. But at some level, you have to make choices, not you, you've got limited resources, who gets, you know, the next shot of the coronavirus virus vaccine. Uh, these, you know, even when you kind of know what the, what the rules are, there's still a judgment of where do you go next and trying to make institutional decisions that don't put our individuals. So the individual doctor who has to make a choice that now the moral hazard or the moral, you know, issues of, you know, am, is it just completely up to me or have I been put in a position where now, you know, I, I'm going against what I think to, to be the right thing. I see a moral choice that I'm being either directed towards or away from that I think is you know, that I, I disagree with. And how do you reconcile those? Richard, you've obviously spent a long time thinking about professionalism and thinking about how morals interact with professionalism. Could you um, elaborate a little bit on how you teach that concept, how you teach morals within professionalism? Um, sure. I think in particular the work in the War College case, and this, so this is a uh, and this is one where when I've looked at the medical profession and, and I've talked with a lot of folks, I realize our system is built to not assume you get it all before you become, for example, commission officers who are sort of our main, you know, sort of professional cohort, the ones to whom we give the most discretionary judgment. You know, we, we identify by rank how much discretionary judgment and how mature they are as professionals. But we start out with the idea that you can't become an officer if you haven't sort of passed a certain level of moral vetting. All the commissioning sources have kind of an intellectual and an ethical component, and they all take oaths. Uh, and so the sense of you have an oath to the Constitution in, in the case of American military officers. So there's a foundation of kind of where you start from. And then as you go up to say that, you know, the sort of discretionary judgment you allow to a lieutenant is going to be much different than the discretionary judgment to a general officer. Um, and so we spend a lot of time. And so we have education, like the War College Anybody becoming a general officer in the U.S. military 
uh, an admiral or a general has to have gone through war college at some point, usually at the 15 to 20 mark of their career, for a year. Uh, and earlier in their career, at about the 10-year mark, they're probably going to have had to at least another injection of sort of professional military education. So our educational model doesn't assume just because you graduated and were commissioned, we're done with you. Uh, the idea that every rank along the way we spend sort of coming back to, okay, at this next level where the judgments are harder and your discretion is greater, there are, you know, th th not only is it sort of technical competence, but, you know, sort of military technical competence, but moral ethical components go up in scope. The social political aspects go up in scope. In other words, the sense of, you know, it's not just moral ethical decisions. It's within an American context uh, for us in the military, dealing with Congress, dealing with the executives in the, in the or the civilians in the executive branch, and the American people more broadly. And then so it, and then there's the part of so those are the three sort of how do you do your profession right? And then there's the part of oh by the way, it takes so long. This is kind of a growing profession, and you're a human being, and eventually your wisdom grows, but eventually you will die. Um, you, who are you preparing to take your place? And so, a sort of fourth component of profession is how are you developing the professionals behind you? So that's a human development component that goes with just the main tasks of yes, military, technical, social, political, moral, ethical, and develop the professionals behind you, because this is a long-standing need for society that you have to account for as well. And that's kind of where I'm in that mode right now is that I was a, I was a serving professional in uniform. I now spend more time developing other professionals to do what I am no longer responsible for. I no longer make life and death, life and death decisions in battle for the, for the United States. But I spent a lot of time working on the people who still have those responsibilities. So I think that is absolutely fascinating in the context of medicine where, um, you know, we do a great job teaching the technical skills, um, but I think we could probably use to brush up on on developing the other perspectives. Um, so back in 1970, after that report on professionalism came out, um, I imagine that was that that kind of brought the army back a bit or at least, you know, caught them up short and said, okay, we need to rethink what we're doing. Um, what, what has been the change since then in how you approach professional development or professionalism um, so that you end up in different outcomes? I mean, you've mentioned body counts, but I can imagine that there are other things as well. Yeah. So probably the, the if I think probably some of the biggest things, and I may be a little bit biased in terms of the world that I'm in, we spent a lot of time on training and education. And that was really where a lot of the investment went to. And I, I, I mentioned, you know, Lieutenant Kelly is sort of a, a fairly quickly produced commissioned officer. The same was happening with non-commissioned officers and, uh, the, you know, meaning the sergeants, the lower rank sergeants and corporals, the ones who lead squads. And of course, a lot of the soldiers themselves were draftees. Uh, so just coming in. And so the idea of how much are we doing in, in the military realm, it's a little, maybe a little bit different than the medical, you know, the idea that human beings have predictable behaviors when it comes to violence. If you get punched in the nose, you get really angry and you fight back. Uh, we spend a lot of time in the military trying to and actually uh, quick aside, you know, at West Point, the course I hated the most, but that I recognized is probably the most valuable one that I took was, in addition to all the academic courses, we had to do physical education. And in your freshman year, you have to do boxing 
I had never boxed in my life. I'd been a wrestler. I'd been a soccer player. I'd been a football player, but I'd never boxed. And the way you got graded in boxing was based on technique, which is really fascinating because what would happen is you'd get in there and you'd get one-on-one in these bouts and somebody'd punch you and you get punched. You just want to hurt them. Even though they're classmates, you're all kitted up and you have the, you know, all the, the, the big thick gloves and the head, head, head gear. Uh, but it really sort of brought home the point that when something like that happens, you have an emotional response that is just human nature. And the point was, can you control that? Uh, and I remember one of my most, uh, one of my proudest moments was I got a B plus in a boxing match where one of my classmates just hurt. I mean, he was really pounding me. It was probably the match by which I walked out the sorest. He got a D. He was from New York City and been in like street fights all the time. And he kind of lost his technique early in the bout. I maintained my technique. He kept hitting me, but his technique was completely lost. So he got a D for not maintaining his composure, frankly. I got a B plus. Uh, I probably hurt more than he did, but I did what I was expected to do. But there was the idea that don't behave normally. We have to prepare you for that environment, which is that's a professional responsibility. And that's where sort of over time it's don't run from a fight, go towards it, which is an, un- an unnatural response. There's things that we have to do. And that's where the training and education, that's where the lieutenants, the NCOs, the draftees who weren't prepared well, let the American people down at Milai. Uh, and that was the army's fault in regard to, we didn't set them, we didn't spend enough effort. We didn't do what West Point had done for me uh, and for other officers to prepare us. We didn't have the non-commissioned officers or the, or the training. So we expanded that tremendously. So it sounds like one of the things that we're talking about now is um, we we don't spend enough time helping folks recognize that they their will, it is unavoidable to get into situations where you feel in conflict with some of the things that you're asking to do you're being asked to do. And what we don't do often enough is to prepare people how to manage those situations. And I think what you're talking about is as as difficult as boxing was, it taught you how to conduct yourself in one of those difficult situations and the discipline and maybe the distance it required to make some of those hard choices yeah. and to manage those situations. Yeah, and and I realize it's probably a long digression, which you're which you're welcome to cut. It won't won't be hurt, but it was the idea that it really it is for that training and education that really gets at professions. And I think, uh, you know, sort of going through uh, setting up the circumstances. This is one where the military I think excels compared to other professions for all the right reasons. We try to think through everything we might have to do in combat because we don't want to practice combat. We don't practice military. Technique, we, we don't want to have to do that because people die and our own people die. So we spend a lot of time practice, 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 educate, 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 avoid, you know, avoid actually having to use it. But when that moment comes, you've got to be ready. For, and, and, there, and you may not be at the rank you were prepared for or uh, a whole variety of circumstances. So our investment in training education, frankly, exceeds it for all the right reasons, many others. But I think that's where we offer a 
uh, a perspective and to saying, how do you think through, you know, when do you, how much can you do to prepare people for making judgments before they have to make them when lives are on the line? And I think that does line up with the medical profession. How do you, and the higher up you go, it's one thing to make a decision at the operating table, I guess, where it's kind of like us on the battlefield. You're, you're just going to react to the situation and do the best thing in the moment versus where do you set the conditions for a group of doctors or a hospital or a, you know, group of hospitals to make sure you're sort of put them in this, in the right situation, like we do for entire units, entire commands, entire services, so that when that moment comes, yes, the tactical decisions will flow from the moment, but what have we done to sort of prepare them before they get to that moment? So one of the things that we talk about a lot is the conflict between um, corporatized healthcare and the autonomy of the individual actually providing what they believe to be the best for the patient in the moment. And this comes up all the time. And again, I'm going to qualify this by saying that your opinions are your own. What are the things that uh, are the parallel in the military? Are there still situations where there are, um, where the corporate structure in the military, I guess the bureaucratic structure, conflicts with the autonomy and the decision-making of the individuals? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we have tensions with our bureaucracy too. And it'll be, and and frankly, we one of the things we've tried to structure is uh, the main parts of our bureaucracy, at least on the military uniform side, tend to be led by members who have been through the development on the, the you know, sort of the understand, so they understand kind of what choices they're making. Uh, but if it's uh, similar sorts of things, it's like, you know, anybody in a battle will want every resource possible, you know, they could get, you know, they, they're saving their troops and themselves at that moment in time. And yet realizing that, you know, at some level, we've said we can only dedicate this many resources. We either don't have them there or we've limited, you know, what's available. And so making, realizing that, and those are moral decisions at the institutional level to say, uh, and I may I'll give an example that sort of comes to mind that has been fairly controversial is like in Somalia in 1993, when they had the Black Hawk Down in incident, there had been a request a month, a few months earlier for tanks to be in Somalia, American tanks. And that request was denied. So they didn't have American tanks there. And the question is sort of, that was a not an inappropriate, but a controversial, uh, you know, sort of institutional decision about what are we there for? What do we stand for and what's available? And some of it is that, but why did it didn't excuse the leaders who made some very different choices or interesting choices that were also controversial as to why did they get themselves drawn into that battle that day, which sort of gets through the, you know, the different layers of how do you sort of frame it and convey down? It's like, yes, we know what you're going to do. You will probably, you may lead us because you're prone to go to the fight, lead us deeper into a fight because you're worried about where you are that moment in time versus what's institutionally appropriate. What does the United States need to do? Uh, I mean, that that's, it strikes me that those weren't easy. As I think through those, those are not great examples, but it's where sort of institutions make decisions for at the right level. They, you can argue with them, but professional judgment was exercised at the national level, at sort of the higher command levels, and at the tactical level where they're not going to necessarily line up easily all the time. And sort of how do you prepare you know, people to operate within the constraints they have? Uh, so... No, no, that, I feel like that wasn't a satisfactory answer, but... No, it's a good answer because there are, there are always those tensions, right, between the, the different levels of command, but also um, between practical 
situations and 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 the day-to-day stuff uh, but it does it is a lot of these that these conflicts that contribute to the uh, moral injury that people st- sustain yeah and and I, I suppose if there is a, a, a if there's a component to that and again like I'm probably biased towards you know training and education is that we tend to be pretty uh, severe in our own sort of uh, dissection of what happened uh, so I mentioned the Black Hawk down. It probably got a lot of attention because it was the mid '90s. We weren't, you know, we weren't in the midst of a lot of wars. A major combat activity on a couple of days that led to a lot of introspection as well about, well, were we prepared? Why did we end up in a situation like that? And so I think as a profession, the willingness to, uh, you know, we're humans. We're making judgments. There's going to be mistakes or there's going to be disagreements about the right ways to do this. But that also comes back to. How do you go forward from these things? How do you learn from them? How do you how do you grow? And and so I think that's where we've spent. I think on the you know, the projects I've described and on the military side, and even with like the recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there's a lot of things that we look at and say well, whether we performed well tactically, but certainly the strategic outcomes have not been what the country wanted. Where's the disconnect? Um, we didn't do that well after Vietnam, frankly. Uh, at the strategic level, I think we did better at the tactical level um, in terms of how we dealt with things like Milai and preparing for for that. But I think we still kind of are going through some issues of what's the military for? What do we think it's for? What do the what does the population think it's for? And that's where you know sort of having having a profession that recognizes uh, that its ongoing responsibility is a negotiation with society. And this is kind of Andrew Abbott's framework again uh this is about how how professions meet society's needs and if you think you know what they are you get some autonomy to help make those choices but the idea that you have to be open that society's needs change uh now i think the meta the other thing that struck me is when i thought about the medical profession is you have a a much more different the medical profession has a much more difficult i think um environment than the military. When we say, what does society think? We, we know who our main demand signals come from. They come from Congress and the executive branch of the government. The U.S. military works for the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is Congress and the executive branch. So we kind of know who to look to. And we know our main negotiating partner. We tend to, and this is a, one of the things I've been dealing with in our professional discussions, we tend to skip over American society as a whole. In some regard, that usually Congress is a good surrogate for American society as a whole, but not always. And this is sort of the, you know, thank you for your service. What does America understand about its military? And are we helping them understand that? The sense of the medical profession doesn't have sort of have the same centralized um, civilian or, you know, spokesperson for society because the states speak for society, the national government speak for society. Uh, corporations are a surrogate for what society is willing to pay in some, so there's a market mechanism and a government mechanism. And I would say the military doesn't have to deal with the market mechanism in quite the same way. And so you've got a more different, the medical profession has a more difficult negotiation with society. That's probably going to be a little more atomized. The negotiation in California is probably different than the one in Texas, for example, uh, or other state by state. It probably varies, not to mention country by country. But I think what is really relevant about what you said is that the different levels of the profession need to stay in contact with one another. So the front lines need to stay in contact with strategists. Tactics and strategy need to be connected. But at the same time, they need to be embedded within the values of the society that they serve. 
And yeah. every level still has to keep all of those things in mind. They have to be tightly tied. I think that's a, a, a that's an excellent way to put it. Um, and that's where, again, I know kind of the way that dialogue, both internally and externally, occurs within the military. Because uh, I know I spend a lot of time, one of the interesting things about the War College, and as the longer I've been retired, the more I recognize that you know, the, the sort of tactical issues are better understood by the students who come in, not the faculty who are here in, uh, many times. That they're the ones who've been with the current crop of soldiers dealing with the current challenges in, you know, around the globe or within the United States. And so, yes, there is, there is an element of professional health internally, uh, not just dictated from on high, we're wise, we've done this, listen to us, uh, but recognize that the way our professions work is practiced, the way our expertise is applied changes too. And we've got to be open to what's coming from the ground up. You know, when, the, when junior officers and soldiers are telling us, hey, yeah, you told me this, but that's not the circumstance we're in now. And you need to change. We need to change how we develop professionals and what we teach. Technology is more important. Technology is less important, whatever the circumstances may be. Uh, so yeah, there is a crucial internal professional dialogue, which is sort of about the strength of the professional community. I think you've also explained a lot about the introspection that occurs at a pretty high level. You know, in medicine, we're pretty good about being introspective at a mortality and morbidity conference at a very patient-focused level. We're not so introspective at a insurance versus hospital level or health system versus government level. And so hearing you talk about introspection at a very high level in the military is fascinating to me. Richard, I, I want to thank you for coming and spending this time with us. It was it gives us so much to think about and for us to put in context of how it may be impacting the individual clinicians and medicine as a whole. Uh, well, I appreciate and I partly I'm, I'm working on a project on the future of the U.S. military profession. So frankly, it's been helpful uh, for me to try to think and, you know, about how other professions meet similar challenges. Because I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, th one of the reasons why you have professions and, and one of the phrases I've used uh, with respect to our profession is to be a really good professional on behalf of society often requires functional ignorance about other things society needs. Meaning that uh, these are particularly at the highest levels. The abstractions are pretty daunting. Uh, and to understand that and medicine and law, no, you can probably do one of these well in a typical human life. Uh, and so figuring out how to serve your role in society is where I marvel at, thank goodness, if I have medical professionals and I have deep respect for the sorts of choices they make and having been through health issues myself, with my wife, with my children, you know, it's the idea of, how do you understand a profession? I mean, they've mastered a body of knowledge I can't, I don't have time to master. I haven't had the time to master. And to be able to trust them to do the right thing. I think that's where um, all of us are in the same goal of making society better, uh, headed towards that direction. So I'm really impressed with this. I love listening to your earlier podcasts. I really appreciate what you all are doing. Uh, and and uh, again, I, I recognize that the commonality of a profession struggling with how to do the best work possible for society is where we have a common thing, a common interest. Uh, and I really appreciate the work you're doing to, to help out with that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, you know, that was just a fabulous conversation and, and, um, you know, really want to thank Richard for joining us and, and 
talking about some of these complicated and contentious and difficult issues to sometimes think about. And I think one of the things that uh, really stood out for me in that episode is the idea of using the knowledge for society's needs, not for our own. The idea that uh, what we're uh, doing and what professionalism is about is taking care of the greater good. Yeah. And, and what the other piece that I was really struck with that he talked about in that vein was how the army in particular spends so much time, not just training for technique, but also training as a professional. What are the new bodies of knowledge you need as you advance in your career? And I, I thought that was, I thought that was really um, an interesting point to bring up in the context of, of a, a big organization like that. Right. And, and how leadership needs to be explicit, how this is training that is not um, implicit training, but rather training that uh, has been thought about and thought about in detail. And some of the mistakes that were made in order to get to that point. I mean, some of the examples he gives are, are very palpable about how leadership training went wrong and how they've learned from that and advanced because of Right. And, and it's not just leadership training, but it was also the fact that at one point, the metrics that the army was using had unintended consequences and it actually ended up eroding the profession as a result. And so kind of that warning about let's make sure that we, that we choose our metrics really carefully. Yeah. Very, very true in medicine as well. I think, um, I think one other parallel that he brings up is the idea that, um, some of these things, and certainly this is true of medicine can't be replaced by a computer algorithm that, being a professional requires a certain judgment and being a professional is the idea that you're mastering an abstract body of information, that this is a graduated responsibility to be doing important things. And that's why in medicine, some of the things that we do as professionals uh, cannot be replaced by, by an algorithm or a guideline or a script um, and need a certain degree of autonomy and a certain degree of, of, of purely professionalism. Correct. Well, that, that was a great conversation, um, and I, I hope that we can start thinking about medicine more as not just an abstract body of knowledge, but also who is going to carry that body of knowledge today and who's going to carry it tomorrow, and how do we train them to do that? So if you like this episode, you are going to love our next release. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we are going to be kicking this off with a bonus episode. So the bonus episode is Dr. Lara Bersenio-Kenny, who started her career as a military physician. And she found herself in a double bind with civilian medicine and a corporate healthcare system that um, really was just not, it, it was not working with uh, how she wanted to practice medicine and how she wanted to live her life. And she eventually made her way into direct primary care. And um, it has not been an easy path for her to take, but she has found it a worthwhile one for her and one that maybe others can learn some lessons from. And then we have uh, Dr. Mike Myers as our next guest. Uh, Dr. Myers is a specialist in physician health and, frankly, is involved in the crisis of physician suicide, which is one of the things that got Wendy and I interested in the area of moral injury in the very first place. So that's going to be a fabulous episode to listen to. Yeah, and we're so grateful to everyone because um, 
you keep listening. And we are now over 4,000 downloads, which is really super. And as part of that, we're going to be recording another Ask Us Anything episode in a few weeks. So we would love it if you could send us emails uh, or voice memos or or any way that you wish to contact us on Facebook or Instagram. Um, The email to send these to is podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. And if there's another topic that you'd like to hear about or another guest, you can send that there as well. Podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. And if you want to continue the conversation, you can find us at Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Instagram at Moral Injury. Twitter at WDeanMD and Simon Talbot MD and at Fix Moral Injury. So thank you. Continue to rate us, continue to review us. We're getting a ton of feedback. We really appreciate it. And we love hearing what you have to say. And please subscribe to upcoming episodes. There are some really interesting topics coming up that you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening. Thank you.